Amen. The last two weekends have been rather special here at Coronado Baptist Church. We've seen many people profess their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior through the waters of believers' baptism. And last night, Leanne Flores made her profession of faith public in Christ. It was a beautiful testimony. And the children's emphasis this weekend has been outstanding. So we're just grateful for all the things the Lord has done for us. I'd like to mention two things before we pray and continue with our worship service, reiterating, underscoring things that were on the video announcements. We have a very important church conference today at 5 p.m. regarding the possible sale of the apartments which we own across the street and the corresponding purchase, or at least entering into negotiations with the Junior League for the purchase of their property. The second thing is for parents and or grandparents of children through high school age. And particularly if your children are a little younger, we're having Kathy Cook, who is not just going to be here by way of video, she will be here. She's one of the leading authorities in the world on children. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to you and worship today. We need you every hour, as the old hymn says, and it is true today. We need you to open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your law. We ask you, Lord, to enlighten the eyes of our heart. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to give us ears to hear which you would have us to receive. We know unless you speak to us, we will not understand. So we ask that you do the miracle of revelation today by revealing to us who you are, more importantly, but secondarily, who we are in you, and what you would have us to become as your followers. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. Last week we looked at the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which is the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. And today we're going to take a look at the first part of the second chapter, of 2 Corinthians. My plan is to be back in the Gospel of John next week as we celebrate Mother's Day. But the Lord, I believe, has led me to share a message from 2 Corinthians today, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 11, and I'd like to read these from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to follow in whatever version you might have with you today. 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. 
For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. During World War II, a man named Viktor Frankl, who was a neuropsychiatrist from Austria, he was of Jewish descent, was interned in Auschwitz, a horrible place. Because of his expertise, he was given certain favors. And as he practiced medicine in that awful place, being a psychiatrist, he was highly curious about what motivates people when they find themselves in such terrible conditions. As he looked at some people, he saw them seemingly die by degrees there. Many, of course, were taken to be gassed, and that was horrible. But many lived long and slow-dying lives in that camp. But what he noticed was there were certain people, for sure in the minority, who seemed to be able to rise above the discouragement they encountered in the camp. And he concluded, and he wrote in his book, The Meaning, Man's Search for Meaning, for our meaning, he wrote these words. He said, What I discovered was that if a person can be given an answer as to why he is suffering, that person will find a way to survive. The people who survived, short of their having been taken to be gassed, were people who had a reason to live because they had received some incentive or answer. I would imagine more than one person present today has come here asking the question, God, why, if you are my Father, do you allow me to suffer? Lord, I am suffering severely. Do you know it? And if you know it, Lord... Do you really care? Well, this passage of Scripture answers the very important question, why do we who know God as our Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, why do we suffer? Here are the two answers. The first of which is this. Our suffering is for others. I have really surveyed my life up close and personal, just like you have. And what I've discovered, after over four decades of following Jesus, I still find myself at times incurably self-centered. Do you ever find yourself acting out as if you had never met Christ before? I dream a lot. It's well documented. And I remember my dreams when I wake up. They're very vivid. doesn't matter if I've been asleep five seconds or five hours, I'm always in a dream when I wake up. I know that flies in the face of all those who study sleep, but nevertheless, it's true for me. And do you know who the center of attention is in every one of my dreams? (laughs) 
Mike Woods. It's the Mike Woods show every time I sleep. It's unbelievable. And do any of you daydream? I don't daydream quite as much as I once did, but I still daydream. And who's the center of my daydreams and yours? You and I are the center of our daydreams. And that, we know, is not what we are to be as we follow Christ. Who are we to imitate? We're to imitate Jesus. And it's not simply an imitation. It's a habitation. Because if we know Jesus, we have become the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in us, whom we have from God, and we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. And His very presence in our lives is evidence that He loves us, but also that He insists upon being not simply a guest in our house, our home, our lives, but to be the Lord of our lives. Our suffering is for others. We're going to look at that in detail. But our suffering is also for ourselves. That's encouraging. There's something that we will benefit from, from our suffering. That can't be said about the vast majority of people in the world, but those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and therefore God as our Father, we know that that is the case. So let's dive right in, beginning with verse 3 as we explore this concept of our suffering as really being for other people. Paul begins this section with a great doxology, a statement of praise for God, and he isolates two characteristics of God in this verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Our God is the Father of mercies. In the book of Lamentations, the Bible says God's mercies are new every day to us as His children. The Bible says also in Psalm 103 that we are to bless the Lord with all of our soul. All that is within us is to bless the Lord. And there's good reason for that. I'm only going to mention one that David mentions in the 103rd Psalm. He satisfies your years with good things. As I've been preparing this message, I recognize that my tendency when I've got a trouble, and I have trouble in my life, and perhaps you do too, when I fixate on the trouble, I zone out as far as any of the other good things the Lord has satisfied my years with. Almost 70 years old, and I have a long-standing history of God satisfying my life even to this day, with good things. And so we understand that our God is the God of mercies. Do you know what mercy is? Probably many of you could give a good definition of grace, one of which perhaps would be this. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. That's a good definition of grace. There are many others which could be suggested. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Do you know what you and I deserve apart from Christ? We deserve judgment. We do not deserve eternal life. We deserve eternal death. When Paul writes about this whole matter of mercy in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, he says, I beg you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God. The basis upon which Paul makes this 
entreaty, this plea to the believers in Rome, and by connection to us today, 20 centuries later, the basis was the mercies of God. The first 11 chapters as we know them in the book of Romans were written to describe and unfold the many mercies of God. We don't have the time to go into most of them, but here's something we need to understand. Paul's description under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of all people before they come to Christ in the third chapter includes these statements. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, he says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks for God. Perhaps you thought you found God. If that's your idea, it's the wrong idea. Jesus found you. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. You might have thought you were finding the Lord, but what happened was He began to work in your heart and stir in you a deep curiosity and a longing for something more. And that something more was more than something. It was a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in the third chapter of Romans, there is none who is righteous, no, not even one. None who is good, no one who seeks the Lord, none who is righteous. But He has had mercy upon those whom He will have mercy. He has shown compassion upon those whom He wishes to show compassion. That's in Romans chapter 9, verse 15. Paul quoting Moses from Exodus 33:19, a correspondence between what we call the Old and the New Testament. Our God is the same yesterday, today, forever, and forever. We have a picture of who God is in both Testaments, and they correspond to one another. So He is the God of mercies. But He is also the God of all comfort. This is most encouraging. The word comfort is a word which means to help in response to a call. It was used to describe an army, an army which was under great stress in battle. And they were being beaten. It looked like they were toast. And word was let out. A plea was sent for reinforcement. And this word, translated comfort, is the word in the verb form that suggests a call for reinforcement, a call for some strengthening, a call from power to avert disaster and to bring victory. When you and I are afflicted, we need someone who can come and do that for us. That someone is the God of all comfort. If you were to take the time to note and count up the numbers of time in this passage of Scripture, which we're looking at today, that either the word comfort as a noun or comforted as a verb is used. There are ten usages of it. Obviously, this is the dominant theme of this section. And quite frankly, it's the dominant theme of the book of Second Corinthians. Paul needed comfort. We need comfort because of the things which we suffer in affliction. Now, let's read further in verse 4. This God of all comfort comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you get the picture? God of all comfort comforts me. 
But I'm not an end in myself. His comfort is not to just stay in my life. I'm to become an agent, a conduit of His comfort to other people. God comforts other people through those whom He has comforted, who have suffered and are afflicted. God comforting us in our affliction enables us to comfort others in theirs. This is God's calling upon your life if you are a child of God. Are there people whom you are being used to comfort because you have suffered affliction? What I notice is that the people whom God uses most in this manner are people who have suffered They have a quality. It's an intangible quality about their lives. They have a humility. They have a sensitivity to people who are suffering because of their own suffering. There's some things that are better felt than telt, the Scots say. And some things we can only know through having undergone those things in terms of what it means to people who are suffering. We can only become agents of God's comfort to others after we have been comforted by God in our trouble. A.W. Tozer knew about this. He wrote, It's doubtful that God can use any person greatly until he has been hurt or she has been hurt deeply. Now, I'm not volunteering to get hurt. Let me be sure you understand that. I have never sought to be martyred. But if we follow Jesus, you're going to have trouble. That's not my thought. That's strictly the Word of Christ. In the book of John, chapter 16, He says, In this world you will have trouble. But don't sweat it, because I'm with you. What is there about the presence of Jesus with us when we're having suffering? Here's what it is. We do not have a high priest in Jesus Christ who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And the word tempted can equally well, and probably should be translated, tried in every way. Jesus has undergone all sorts of trials. And remember, He's not just our companion as we travel through this life. He indwells us. The Bible says... A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and his name is Jesus. Were Jesus to materialize in our midst today, and he would raise his hands as he is often depicted as doing when he would bless people, what we would see in itself would be a blessing. We would see the wounds of Jesus. And we who have been afflicted. We are people who are best suited to minister to those if we have reached out and received the comfort of the Lord. After this message that I'm sharing with you is finished today, one of our dear sisters in the Lord came to me and she told about the fact that she had lost two adult sons. They had died under very negative circumstances. And she said for a couple of years, she could not feel anything as far as the favor of God in her life. 
She was very transparent. And she was saying, Then I read about Rachel and how there was weeping in Ramah because Rachel had lost her children. And then I realized that Joseph, the son of Jacob and Rachel, in his story there's embedded this little piece about his father Jacob. And when Jacob received word, it was a lie, but he received word from his ten oldest sons that their little brother Joseph had died and they had made it look like he had died. You know the story. And he's shipped off to Egypt as a slave. And the Bible says that Joseph, I mean Jacob rather, refused to be comforted. Now you may be here today and be in the place of Jacob. The devil has given you a lie that God is not the God of all comfort and you refuse to be comforted. Now God understands that. He's just like we are as parents. Have you ever had a child that you had to discipline? And you did it because you loved the child. That's the only reason to discipline a child. And if we don't discipline a child, what does the Bible say is true of us? We're not good parents. And what we also know is that we're illegitimate children if our parents don't really, on the physical level, not so much, but our heavenly parent, if he doesn't discipline, we're not really children of God. It's a function of his love toward us. But if you ever discipline your child and your child just sold up, wouldn't have anything to do with you, has that ever happened to you? Well, it happened to me more than once, to be honest with you. But we know that that's the way we act toward the Father. Is it not? We think He's done us wrong. He's jilted us. He doesn't care about us. Poor me. Well, you notice who the center of attention is in that mentality. Moi. And I don't know what the French is for you, but I, you can do that. <laughs> But here's a very important question. This, this is a sensitive question. And the answer may be the answer you would not expect. Uh, let's read verse 6 together to get some insight into the answer. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. So why am I afflicted? It's for somebody's comfort and salvation. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 7 of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. Notice what Paul writes here in verse 7 of chapter 12. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, this is rather odd. This messenger from, of Satan comes and gives Paul what? A thorn in the flesh. Most scholars believe it had to do with a physical abnormality, an incurable disease, we might say, not a fatal disease, but one which nagged him and made life difficult for him. But when you think about it, what was the purpose of the messenger of Satan, the thorn in the flesh. What was it? It was to keep him from exalting himself. Well, let me ask you another question. Do you know enough about the devil to know that he would never do anything that would cause you to not exalt yourself? Did you know that? He wants us to rise up in pride. 
If you know anything about Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, what you know is it describes how Satan was ejected from heaven because he exalted himself. And the Lord is interested in us in humbling ourselves. The Bible says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that in due time He may exalt you. There will come a day for us who know Christ when we will be exalted. It won't be in this life, probably. It will be in the life to come when we won't be tempted to become proud because we've been exalted by God. We'll be glorified. We won't be able to sin at that point. But what we do know is that Satan cannot, by his very nature, say to you, don't exalt yourself. He is the epitome of one who exalts himself. And when he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, what did he tempt Eve to do? To be like God. What's that amount to? To exalt herself. And Adam did the same thing. And they sinned and fell. And we suffer the consequences of their sin to this day because we're born with a sinful nature. Nobody has to teach us to sin. Nobody has to teach us to be self-centered. Nobody has to teach us to be proud. We all come by it very naturally. Paul writes to the Philippians. He says, I have a desire to know Christ and to know the power of His resurrection. And, this is not often quoted because we don't want to think about it, and to share in His sufferings. And here's a remarkable statement in Philippians 1.29. How are we saved, by the way? We're saved by what? By grace, through faith, and that not of ourselves, not of works, lest any of us should boast. That's awesome. That's in Ephesians chapter 2. But in Philippians 1.29, this is what Paul writes. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to share in His sufferings. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift. Did you know suffering is a gift from God to you? That's what the Scripture says. I didn't make it up. And there's not much emphasis on it for good reason. We don't want to think like that. We want to protect God. We don't want people to think God is an unloving God. Well, God is a loving God. There's just an aspect of His love that we are slow to embrace. And that is that He disciplines those whom He loves so that we can be agents of compassion to others. Compassion grows through suffering. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There is a sense in which we will never be able to be blessed with mercy until we learn how to bless others. And that comes through the grace of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul writes these words, This is the will of God, even your sanctification. We cannot grow spiritually apart from trouble. Mark it down. We will not grow without some conflict in our lives. But the joy that comes out of the bitterness of trouble at times is we can help others. 
It's lovely when that happens. But let's go on to the second part. Our suffering is also for ourselves. Look at verses 8 through 11 as we continue our way through this passage. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Let me stop here for just a moment and note that the church is oftentimes, in America at least, criticized for its hypocrisy. And there is a certain legitimacy to that, for sure, to our shame. And part of it is the word that is translated hypocrisy in the New Testament really was a word which came from the theater of the day. And the actors, there would not be a big troop of actors. There may be three or four actors. And actors and actresses played more than one part. And they would have masks which they would hold on a stick. And when they were playing one part, they would put the mask over their face. And then later they would take that down and they would play another part. Sometimes only one person was the only actor in a presentation of a play. The condition of the church in America and in our church, I'm sure, in my life as well, it's high time that the church become a place for burden sharing and burden bearing. My marriage is in trouble. My son's on drugs and I don't know what to do. I can't take the loneliness created by my husband's death. I'm in a financial bind and I need help to get out and stay out. My tongue's getting the best of me. My pride's overwhelming me. Lust is consuming me. I'm depressed. I've got a drinking problem and on and on. Those kind of thoughts are swirling around in the hearts and minds of people in this room, I would imagine. But we're afraid to confess our faults to one another for fear we will be rejected. Let's understand something. The Lord wants us to be real with each other. We have to be discreet and discerning about all that we share and with whom we share. But we need to have that context so that we can get help. We can get encouragement. We can get comfort from those who have been afflicted and have overcome the affliction by the power of God as He has comforted them, probably through other people and certainly through the Word of God. The Bible says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, that word encouragement is related to this word comfort. It's in the same word family. If you looked at them side by side, you could see that if you could understand the language of the New Testament. So it's through people and the Word of God. And then we're able to minister to other people. When the Bible talks about our bearing one another's burdens, it talks about those who are spiritual in Galatians 6, go and find the person, the brother in Christ, who finds himself trapped in a trespass and with gentleness restore the brother. Do you know the kind of person who is used to do that is not the person who feels like he or she has to make a big statement of having it all together. It's the person who has been broken on the shoals of his or her own ego and pride and is able to admit that and doesn't think the Lord will ever use him or her again. But lo and behold, the Lord specializes in redeeming our lives from the pit 
that we find ourselves in. And when we come out of that, ministered to by the Holy Spirit, we are people who are able to truly minister to other people. It's time we became real in the church of Jesus Christ. Authenticity is absent. Credibility is at an all-time low. During World War II, the voice of America was a radio wave message that went into Germany and France to encourage the resistance in those countries and the people who weren't part of the regime of the Third Reich. And the voice was a man named John Houseman. Many of you are old enough to remember the movie Paper Chase. Great movie. He was a star in that. He was the voice. And as he was interviewed after World War II, he said, we would not in any way lie to the Germans and the French who were on the Allies' side. Because we knew if we lied to them then, once we had something true to tell them, they might not believe it either. So when we report, we report every loss that the Allies suffered during the war. And then there came a time at the end of every broadcast where we would say, but in America, we have plans this year to make 750 other aircraft which will help liberate Europe. 500 more tanks will help liberate you from the Third Reich. And this is what he said. When the tide turned in World War II, the voice of America was more credible than it would have been had it only reported America's victories and not reported America's defeats in the early going. You need to share your defeats with somebody in the body. And God will lead somebody to you. And it won't shock them probably. They'll say, you too? Well, let me tell you how the Lord comforted me by afflicting me, by disciplining me because He loved me. And how He showed me a new dimension of His person as a result. So, what are the steps that we are to take when it comes to suffering for ourselves? Here's the goal. That we might not rely on ourselves. It says it in this passage. We might not trust ourselves, but trust in God who raises the dead. That's the goal of your suffering for you. The goal is so that you will quit depending upon you. And you will throw yourself lock, stock, and barrel upon the Lord. You'll take your hands off your life and you'll give Him control. And what release and joy there is in that situation. So, there must be distress in your life. Paul was under great pressure, far beyond his ability to endure. Indeed, in his heart, he felt the sentence of death. Distress, he despaired of life. So, distress follows on the heels of this idea of duress in our lives and gives way to despair. He said we despaired of our lives. Utter despair is the idea. Not just a little bit of despair, but downright depression. Then despair leads to death. Isn't that what he says? We were under great pressure for our ability to endure. In our hearts we felt the sentence of death. You have to die to yourself. We no longer can depend upon ourselves at all, but we die to ourselves. The Apostle Paul 
says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. He says we are instinctively self-sufficient. That's what he says. And we need to know that. And this despair leads to death to self, and death to self leads to dependence upon God, which leads to his deliverance. This is good news. Our God is a deliverer. Many times we sing the song, Our Deliverer is Coming. He's already here. He's here for you and for me. But what's necessary is that we understand we've got to truly let go and let Him control our lives. Matthew Henry, the great commentary man from the 18th century, said, Our extremity is God's opportunity. The more extreme your trouble, the more greatly the power of God is available to you when you relinquish control. You turn your life over to Him. You die to yourself. You take Him as your reference point. And this dependence upon the Lord and the deliverance which follows is based on God's great power seen in the resurrection. He is the God of mercies. He is the God of all comfort. But He is, thank God, the God who raises the dead. Do you know that God's resurrection power works best in a graveyard? You may think, hope's gone for me. May I share with you? Look up. Your redemption draws nigh. In the darkest part of your life, if you trace the hand of God in the circumstances of your life, you can trust the heart of God to deliver you from that difficulty. John Piper says in this regard, God's design in all our trouble is that we let go of self-confidence. This is not what Piper said, but he could have said it. God wants us to place all the pressure of our lives on Him. He does. How do I know that? This is what the Bible says in Psalm 55, 22. It says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. Do you know what the word burden literally is? It's the Hebrew term, let you cast all that He has given you upon Him. He's given you. Why would the Lord give you a burden? Why would He give you a trouble in your life? Well, for good reason. So that you will come to Him. You'll roll it off on the Lord. And when you do that, you get peace. You have to have first died to yourself, denied yourself, and then you must depend upon Him exclusively for your life. One of the great figures in the history of the church is a man named... Hudson Taylor, he was the founder of the China Inland Mission in the 19th century, and God used him dramatically. He came to understand this passage of Scripture that we have looked at today. He was a hard-working man. He'd work 18, 20 hours a day. He lost children. He lost so much in the way of human relationships on the field. He lost a wife. He lost so much. He almost lost his life there many times. He lost his health. Listen to what he wrote after he finally understood this principle. It doesn't matter really how great the pressure is 
It only matters where the pressure lies. See that it never comes between you and the Lord. Then, the greater the pressure, the more it presses you to the Lord's breast. This is the goal of your suffering, that your suffering is for others, that once you're comforted by the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies, then you are a tool in His hand. He works through you to comfort others with whatever affliction they are encountering. And then it's good for ourselves because we are at wit's end corner. We cannot figure it out. We've tried everything. And how many times have you said this? We've done everything. I guess I'll have to pray. I've heard some of you say it. I'm not going to call you your name, but I've heard some of you say that. We need to depend on the Lord. Totally. Not partially. Not conditionally. But throw ourselves on the Lord. And here's a goal I have, and I'm far from reaching it. The first part of it, I've got down. Whom do I have in heaven but you, Lord? Yes, Lord. And the last part says that I desire nothing on earth besides you, Lord. I'm not there yet, but I'm closer than I was five years ago or 15 years ago or 30 years ago. And I was growing in the Lord then, thank God, because He was moving me along. But what I do know is as we move through this life and we suffer, And we recognize that it's not something that God has not noticed. God was part of it for the purpose of drawing us to Himself, to be close to Him. You know how much God wants you to be close to Him? He loves you. And He wants you to grow close. And you will not grow close when things are going great for you. It's the truth. You'll forget Him. You'll blow Him off. If everything goes smoothly for you all your life. So let's pray together to the Lord now. Lord, we thank you for opening our eyes to things that are new to us, but are truths about you that have always been a part of the way in which you've related to your people. We thank you that you have an immediate response, Father, to our difficulty when we are at our rope's end and we cry out to You. And we thank You for Your responsiveness to us. We thank You for Your presence with us. And we thank You, Lord, for Your great power to deliver us. We claim the promise of Your Word that You are near to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. And that many are the afflictions of the righteous. But you, Lord, deliver the righteous out of all those afflictions. Lord, thank you for pressing us in closer to you. As we find ourselves with great pressure on our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.